You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. All right, good morning. It's always such a pleasure for me to come back to speak to you. And today I'm going to be going over the second part of Overview of the Bible. I went over the first part last month, and we'll be going over part two today. And um, the thing I said last month was one of the best things I could do as a speaker is to help you understand the Bible. And that's why I endeavor to do in, by going over the overview of the Bible. Um, so let me just start out with this illustration. If you are in the middle of Kansas somewhere, let's say, and um, you know, this is before the times that we would be able to fly to the moon or you know, satellites up in outer space and everything, no one would blame you if you thought the Earth was flat, Okay. And even today, uh, for the NBA fans out there, Kyrie Irving um, thinks the Earth is flat. So if you're up to date on the latest of NBA stuff. But once you realize that you can go out into outer space and you see photographs and pictures of, of the Earth, you realize, wow, the Earth is incredibly round, spherical. And look at all the water compared to the landmass out there. And you realize the Earth is not flat. Likewise, I think... Sometimes we have difficulty understanding the Bible because we're reading each verse on ground level, if you will, narrowly. Um, and we miss the force because of the trees, if you will. But if you have a chance to take a look at the Bible from an aerial view, a different perspective, an overview of the Bible, I think it'll help you uh, have a much greater understanding of the Bible when you're reading the Bible on ground level. And that's what I endeavor to do today by giving you part two of overview of the Bible. This is what I went over last time. I went over the goals of the sermon of my sermon. This is the same. I have the same goals today. The goal number one is to help you understand the Bible, giving you this overview, this overarching view. And last month, I spent my time going over the two main purposes of the Bible. And one of the main purposes of the Bible, I said, and I stressed this throughout the sermon, was that Jesus is the central theme of the Bible. The Bible is all about Jesus. Okay. And today, I'm going to be going over the overview of the eight major sections of the Bible. So that's what I'm going to be uh, concentrating my time on today. And if you understand these two uh, overviews of the Bible, you will come to know God more, and then subsequently you will understand how to live your life better to glorify God. Now, um, again, last time I said that Jesus is the central theme of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the unifying thread of the Bible. And what I mentioned last time was that it's pretty obvious that Jesus is a central theme of the New Testament, but how is he the theme of the Old Testament? Um, because, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you don't really see Jesus there. And my um, illustration that I used last time was Where's Waldo? And for those who are familiar with Where's Waldo, you understand you're supposed to find Waldo in these pictures, in the, in the books. And, of course, if you don't know what, where's, who, where, who Waldo is or what Waldo is, like Pastor Peter did, did not know, then you are going to have a tough time finding Waldo, okay? Because you don't, have no idea what he looks like or what, who he is. But then once you find out who Waldo is, he's this guy with the spectacles and the peppermint cap and striped shirt and blue pants. Now you can find Waldo uh, in these pictures, even though he's still tough to find. And that's what it, Old Testament and New Testament is like. In the Old Testament, Jesus is more hidden. He's concealed. He's veiled. And once, it's not until you get to the New Testament where Jesus is subsequently revealed. He's manifested. He's obvious. He's shown. Um, then 
you can understand who Jesus is. Now you can look back in the Old Testament and you see Jesus there all over the place. This is not something we're making up. This is what Jesus himself said in many passages in the New Testament. He would keep harping to his disciples and to other people and to the Jewish skeptics that the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, the, um, the law, Moses, they all wrote about me. The Old Testament scripture is all about me. And that's what Jesus was trying to stress. And so last um, uh, month, what I did was I spent time going, showing you how Jesus is implicitly revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, he's revealed through types. And type is a person or event or some symbol that foreshadows something in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that foreshadows something in the New Testament. And the, most of the Bible types are types of Christ. So I'd mention all these uh, things in the Old Testament, such as the sacrificial lambs, the manna, the, the brazen serpent, all these uh, people and events uh, from Moses to Jonah to Joseph to uh, Abraham to Isaac. All these people represent and foreshadow Jesus Christ in some way. And when you can look back through the Old Testament stories and you read about these characters, you'll see how uncanny it is um, the way the, the Old Testament described them foreshadows Jesus. And so we talked about that. We also talked about how Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. There are uh, probably over hundreds of different verses in the Old Testament that prophesy the, uh, the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus, in his life, um, uh, would fulfill these, including his miracles. And that's why he did miracles, to prove that he is the Messiah. And for, uh, fortunately, some people believe this, and some Jews believe this, but unfortunately, a lot of Jews did not recognize the foreshadowing, um, this foreshadowing, the typology, and also didn't recognize all this prophecy. They're still looking for another Messiah, but Jesus fulfilled all this prophecy in the Old Testament. And also, we talked about the angel of the Lord, this description of this person that would make appearances to various people throughout the Old Testament. And um, I argue that the angel of the Lord is actually physical appearances of the pre-incarnate Jesus, of the second person of the Trinity making appearances called Christophanies. And so this is how Jesus is implicitly revealed throughout the Old Testament. Now today, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. And before I get into the eight various sections of the Bible, um, I want to discuss another concept called worldview. Now, everybody in this, in this world has a worldview. And a worldview is basically the conception of how you feel or think that the world really is. Um, the worldviews are comprehensive. They affect every area of your life, uh, from your thoughts, your beliefs, how your views on money, morality, politics, family, work, how you view and treat others. Now, all worldviews have at least these three things that they answer, these, these three questions that they answer. Worldviews answer questions like, what about creation? How did this world begin? How did the, um, where do we come from? Why are we here? It answers fall, the, the fall. What's wrong with this world? And your worldview will answer redemption. What's the solution? How can we fix this world? Okay? So let me give you an example. The naturalistic worldview, the, not, we're not talking naturalistic like I eat, you know, I like to eat organic food and granola and stuff like that. We're talking naturalism, like all you think there is is just nature. Um, another way to describe it would be atheism. Okay, the naturalists, they would answer a worldview by saying, well, the creation, uh, many of them would answer, we don't know how it came about. We think it came about from nothing. This whole universe just came about from nothing. And we're just basically the byproducts of, you know, 
at random acts of nature, just molecules that happen to get together and then form living life. That's, that's basically what we are. The fall, well, the problem is that you know, people don't expect nature and we, we're ruining uh, the world and we need to um, take better care of, the, of nature. Um, and then a lot of atheists think, so, well, religious people, they're the problem in this world. And then uh, redemption. Well, we can save the world through ecology and conservation and environmentalism. And we also can improve mankind, make us better, make us more you know, tolerant people. That's how we can improve the world. Okay? Here's the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview answers these three questions like this. Number one is creation. We, feel, we believe that the universe is created by God, and we are God's creation, and we're designed to govern the world and fellowship with him. The fall. The problem with, with this world is we sinned against God, and our sin has subjected the whole world to a curse. And that's why the world is the way it is, this fallen world, because of our sin. And redemption. God has redeemed this world through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And one day was going to restore creation to his former perfect state. So this is, this is in a very quick nutshell, the Christian worldview. Okay? Now, this is how we want to link the worldview to the 66 books of the, that make up the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. They're all inspired by God. And they put together to give us this story of reality, this worldview, this comprehensive worldview of how this world really is. And the biblical books are likened to a puzzle pieces that when you put together, gives us this comprehensive worldview. It gives us this view of God, the world, and our roles in this world. Okay? So, um, if the Bible is more or less this story of reality, um, all stories, or m- many stories like big novels and movies, they typically have these core elements to the story, okay? They have setting, they have characters, they have a plot, they have a theme, they have uh, conflicts in the story, and then they have conflict resolution, how the, how the conflict's going to re- be resolved. If you look at the characters, there's usually at least one, if not mi- uh, several protagonists. The protagonists are the hero in the story, the heroes, okay? This is the way the author wants you to see the world through the hero's eyes. They want to persuade you to see their worldview. Then there's the antagonist. Antagonist, they're like the villain. They're the villain in the story. This is the worldview the author wants you to reject. You don't want to be their worldview. And then the conflict of the story, the drama, is the clash of their worldviews. Okay, the antagonist versus protagonist. So in the story of Christianity, the biblical books lay out that protagonist is Jesus Christ. Okay? An antagonist is Satan. He's the antagonist. He's called the adversary. He is the villain. And the conflict is the clash of their worldviews. Now, the thing about the Bible, though, this isn't just... The Bible wants you to realize this is not some fairy tale. This is real life. This is a real story. And what's interesting about the Bible is we're not just observers of this story. We are part of this story of reality. We are caught in the story of the Bible. Now, the protagonist, Jesus, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, my worldview is the way that you need to follow and you need to um, look to. Satan, on the other hand, is tugging us, too, to follow his worldview. He is the father of lies, and he has actually been allowed to be the ruler of this world for a finite time. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober mind, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
And he has done a good job of devouring many people and being the father of lies and allowing us to, um, to, to uh, feed into those lies and then see uh, and follow the darkness. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, meaning Jesus, but the men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So we are naturally inclined to love the darkness. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so all of us have fallen short. So here's the deal. The, within the conflict of the story, like many suspenseful stories and novels and movies, the prognosis looks grim. It looks like there's no way out. And that's the way it is for us. Our prognosis is dire, is grim. Our sin has marred us so badly that we are kept away from God and there is seemingly no way out, okay? Before I get to the conflict resolution, I want to introduce one other concept in, um, in uh, stories. Lots of stories will also have these people called reflection characters. And reflection characters are persons in the story that they kind of, they're either part of the team with the protagonist or sometimes they could be with the antagonist. But they usually try to solve the problem their own way. It usually doesn't turn out well. So like if you're in a movie like, I don't know, Jurassic Park, the reflection characters would be characters that try to escape the dinosaurs this way and then they get eaten because (laughs) you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have ran out that way. Sorry, now you're dead because you're eaten by the dinosaur. Or, you know, in like dramas where, um, or, or war movies where uh, some soldiers would try to get out of the bunker this way and then they get shot and they die. And the main protagonists say, shouldn't have done that, should have listened to me, and then they die. Or some other uh, cop movies, they try to solve crimes or do something this way and it turns out to be the wrong way. So these are reflection characters, okay? And they add more to the drama. Well, in the story of reality, we humans are reflection characters, if you will. Humans throughout the world have tried to solve their problems many different ways. If you're an atheist, you may solve the problem by just making more money, gaining power and fame. Even if you're a theist, you may try to do that. And then uh, other people try to, well, we solve the d- dilemma of this world by you know, saving the environment, helping others. And of course, many humans who are theists try to solve their dilemma by doing good works, obeying the Torah, going to church. But at the end, all this will prove to be futile because none of these problem, ways to solve your problem is going to work in the end. And that's what the Bible is trying to harp on. So we are basically reflection characters in the story of reality. Now here's the conflict resolution. God decides to solve this conflict this, and create a way out for us by sending a rescue plan. The protagonist will rescue us in the most unique way. What happens to Matthew 121 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from his sins. It's like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. The, the, the hero is going to be born and then in the future and is going to come and save the world. And this has happened before the time even began. The second person in the Trinity knew he would lower himself, take on human flesh, and live the perfect, sinless life for us. And John 3.16 says, of course, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so how does this get resolved? Through, uh, how, does, how do we get redeemed? Jesus' life takes him to the cross where he's going to make a divine trade with the father of epic proportion. The punishment for all the crimes of all humanity for all times will be heaped and poured out on Jesus on the cross. 
And Jesus is going to appease the wrath of, this, of God from the debt that we owe God but can never pay back on our own. So Jesus' perfect life is going to be traded for the world's sins. And we read uh, Romans 3.23 earlier, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.24 follows that up by saying, but we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus redeems us, way, us this way, dying on a cross, making a transaction that we can never do ourselves. And so finally we get to restoration. And it's interesting, even way back in Genesis 3, right after the, the Adam and Eve fallen, eat, eat of the fruit, this is what God says to the serpent, to Satan. He says, I'm going to put an enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he says this, God predicts to, to Satan that he shall bruise your head, meaning he, he is predicting the future Messiah. Jesus is going to bruise your head. He's going to knock Satan out. And you shall bruise his heel, meaning the devil, the best, you can, the best you can do is just bruise his heel. You're just going to nick him on his heel and cause Jesus' death on the cross. But that's the worst that's going to happen, for he is going to rise again. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will, will live even if he dies. So the worst Satan's going to do to Jesus is bruise his heel. But Jesus is going to knock him out, is going to crush his head. And John uh, 12, 31 says, judgment has come into this world, and now the ruler world will be cast out. And the world will eventually be restored to his original good state. So this is basically a, a summary of the story of reality that the 66 books of the Bible is portraying. And if you miss this, this story of reality, you miss the boat. You miss the whole point of the Bible. And again, my point is sometimes we're reading different Bible verses, and we get lost in the forest because of the trees. You want to link uh, what you're reading in the Bible to the story of reality. So what I want to um, do now is to show you that, as I mentioned before, the theme of the Bible is, is that Jesus is the theme of the Bible. A lot of us think the theme of the Bible is about, the Bible is about love, it's about redemption, it's about forgiveness, it's about salvation or, or relationship. And these are incredibly important themes of the Bible. Okay? I don't want to discount them at all. But ultimately, the main theme of the Bible is that God, especially Jesus, owns everything and has the authority to rule over everything um, that he has made, and he has redeemed us. Um, look at Colossians 1.16. says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Basically, Jesus wants you to realize that he is the theme of the Bible. So what we're going to do now is going to go over um, the 66 books of the Bible in the next 20 minutes, all right? So uh, this is the order of the Bible. We start with the, the Bible has been put in a specific order um, from Genesis, Old Testament, all the way to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, you have 27, 30, there's, the, there's 39 books there, and then 27 more books that make up the New Testament. So let me give you a quick quiz here. The order of the biblical books, are they arranged by, how are they arranged when we put them together? Are they arranged in chronological order, pretty much the order in which the events took place? Or is it B, the order in which they were written by the human authors? Or is it C, they're arranged in sections based on their genre and somewhat in chronological order? Or is it D, sections based on the most utilized books in the Old Testament and New Testament, respectively, they are placed in that order? Or is it E, combination of answers A and B? 
What do you guys think? So the answer is C. They're based on sections based on their genre and somewhat in chronological order. But it's really not in chronological order. So here's the Old Testament books in order, and they're broken up into sections or genres. So there's four sections to the Old Testament. You have the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they're called the law. Then there are history books, Joshua through Esther. And then the next section is the poetry and wisdom books, Job, Song, Song of Songs. And then you've got the prophecy books, which, which there's a lot of books in the prophecy section, broken up to major and minor prophets, okay? So the Old Testament's broken up into four major sections, okay? And the New Testament's also broken up into four major sections or genres. You've got the Gospels, then Acts is its own section, and then you have the Epistles, which makes up the most books of the New Testament, and then you have Revelation in its own genre. Okay, so if you think of the Bible, the order of the Bible in this way, I think it's going to help you understand the Bible better. All right, the way I look at it is the Bible is kind of like jigsaw puzzles. Anybody here like to do jigsaw puzzles? Anybody? A couple? Okay, good. Uh, I have no time or patience to jigsaw puzzles, but but um, yeah, I guess if you get into it, they're fun. But could you imagine you dump a bunch of jigsaw puzzles on the ground and, and someone says, "Here, go at it," and you're like. Uh, we're missing something. I need the box, right? I need the picture for me to look at. Otherwise, it's going to be really frustrating. It won't be as fun. And the Bible is kind of like, the way people read the Bible is kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. They're just putting pieces together, and they're just taking verses out of context. But when you look at the big picture of things, you can see the picture, then it's much easier to place those pieces together. And when we read the Bible, you've got to look at the Bible in terms of major sections like genres, and then you look at the big picture. Remember what the big picture is. The big picture is the Bible is about Jesus Christ. He's the theme. When you link it that way, when you look at it that way, then the pieces will fit together better. Okay? So um, what this slide here is, is the kind of my main slide of the sermon, and it's in your bulletin. It's in your program. Um, uh, the Bible, as I said, is broken up, can be broken up to eight major genres or sections. And each of these have a very Christocentric aspect. So the law lays the foundation for Christ. The history section of the Bible will prepare, prepares us for Christ. The poetry wisdom has aspiration for Christ as its Christocentric aspect. And the prophecy section, there's expectation of Christ and so on. So these are in your bulletin. Um, so in case you're writing frantically, it's, it's there. Um, and um, so this is a nice slide that shows us the... Christocentric aspect of the Bible and how the major genres of the Bible contribute to that. All right, so what I want to do now, um, by the way, as I mentioned before, the Bible's sort of in chronological order, but not really. There are actually Bibles out there that are called chronological Bibles, and they, they take all the different books and, and passages of the Bible and they try to put them in chronological order. So you may be reading you know, Job at the same time you're reading Genesis, because a lot of people think Job was the first book written. And then um, there's a mishmash. The, the prophets are mixed in with the history section and the wisdom literature is all mixed in. So the Bible is um, um, not put in chronological order, but put in genres. All right. So now what I'm going to do is spend a minute or two on each of the genres to just give you an overview and how that links into Jesus. The law books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five are the first five books of the Bible, known as the law or the Torah, um, or the Pentateuch, meaning five. Um, in Genesis, it speaks prophetically of Christ as the seed of the woman we, we just learned, and the seed of Abraham, and a descendant of Judah who will one day rule Israel. 
And then the book of Deuteronomy speaks of Christ when it foretells the coming of this prophet who will be greater than Moses. And the law, which is given in Exodus and then subsequently explained in Leviticus, was given to us to show how sinful man is and that we can never obey all the law. And, we, and it brings us to Christ because we're going to need his, his suffering and dying on a cross for our sins. So this is the law. Um, the time period of the law would be from about probably 4,000 or earlier B.C. from Adam. Takes you through Abraham and Joseph and Egyptian slavery all the way to the time of Moses, Ten Commandments, and right before they're about to enter the Promised Land. So it covers about 2,500 years of, of, of story. Okay. Now let's get to the history books. The history books um, stem from Joshua all the way to Esther. And history books record the events of Israel's history from the time of entering the Promised Land to the time that they return from exile covers about a thousand years. And a lot of stuff is happening during these thousands of years. So you have Joshua entering promised land and you have all these time of judges, this time of dark period in Israel's life where the, the nation of Israel keeps falling from God and doing what's right in their own eyes and then subsequently repenting and coming back to God and God restoring them. And then they fall again from God. They go into idol worship and all this stuff and they go crazy and they do all crazy stuff God welcomes them back after they repent. So you have this cycle of judges. And then they say, we want a king. We want a king, like all these other nations. God gives them a king. Saul, then David, then, then Solomon, who goes sour. And then eventually the kingdom is divided and goes from the, and divides into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And eventually these kingdoms go bad, and God allows them to be exiled and to be destroyed, uh, taken from enemy nations from, by the Assyrians and subsequently the southern kingdom by the Babylonians and so on. So this is basically the history section, which then ends after return from exile, the building of the temple, um, Nehemiah, Ezra, and so on. So that's the history books. Through it all, the history books, their job, um, when it links to Jesus, is they, we see the unfolding of God's promise to make him a great nation. And God's going to continue to redeem this nation time and time again. And eventually, out of Abraham's lineage, is the virgin birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want to take a really quick sidebar here, um, just really quick, because since I'm the apologetics guy, I love apologetics, I have to do, always do some apologetics things. Right, Peter? Every sermon, I have to throw in something. So this is my apologetics moment here. In Genesis, God sets up this covenant with Abraham and says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant. This, this covenant was, was made 4,000 years ago. Okay, 4,000 years ago, he gives this covenant to Abraham. This fledging group of people called the Jews. There is no way, if God wasn't in charge of this, that the Jews could have ever lasted and survived. Think about all those stories in the Old Testament we, we see. The, the, the mighty Canaanites who tried to crush the Jews. The Egyptians who enslaved them. The Syrians who then took, took them away. The Babylonians who took them away and tried to assimilate them and crush them and destroy their culture and their language. None of them was successful. All those people were the most powerful people in the face of the earth at this time, the most powerful countries, yet they couldn't crush the Jews. And then we get to the first century, and the Romans tried to do the same thing. Persians, 6th century. Crusaders in the 12th century. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella in the Spanish Inquisition, 15th. Then we get to the Russians. And then just a couple of generations ago, we have Hitler tried to exterminate all the Jews. He, he was successful in getting, uh, killing, exterminating 6 million of them, 
but yet the Jews still remain strong. There's no other nation on the face of this earth that has ever managed to keep a culture, identity, and language intact this long, 4,000 years, let alone against all the genocidal hatred repeatedly encountered by the Jews. And yet today, Israel has become restored as a nation, 1948, and so on. Think about that. There is just no way that could have happened. No other, there's no other land, people, or culture that has retained that except for the Jews and against all odds. And how could that have happened if it wasn't for the, our God is actually real and fulfilled his promises and God's word is true? Does that make sense? I hope you guys see that. And that just shows you how valid this story of reality is that we find in the Bible. All right. So now let's get to the wisdom poetry uh, section. Uh, this would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Now, the writing in the wisdom poetry books, they span from the time of Abraham to the end of the Old Testament. So they're just written throughout. Even though the wisdom books don't directly address the main plot of the Bible, their contribution is still invaluable. Okay? Uh, Job addresses the topic of human suffering that we all will experience at various levels throughout our life. Uh, and we juxtapose that through God's sovereignty. So we learn about how to deal with suffering through Job. Psalms is a collection of prayers, poems, hymns that focus on God and praise. And in Psalms, one of the themes there is this promise of a Savior in the future. And then Jesus quoted from Psalm 22 extensively while he was on the cross. Proverbs teaches us how to live wisely under the fear and reverence of God. And Ecclesiastes shows us how meaningless life is without God. So this collection of wisdom literature or poetry deal with every facet of our lives, from our good times, our struggles, our emotions, our needs, our fears. Um, we pour out those things to God in, through the learning when we, when we read and learn the wisdom and poetry section of the Bible. Now, the last section of the Old Testament is called the prophet, prophecy section, or the prophets. The prophets were called by God to speak God's message to people. They were basically great preachers. They would confront people of their sin. They would warn of coming judgment to those who didn't obey and, and didn't repent. And they would also bring a message of hope and blessing to those who walk in obedience. Another part, important job of the prophets is they would make these future uh, prophecies or predictions. And all, all these predictions about the coming Messiah. And they would give amazingly accurate details that would be subsequently fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, um, the prophets... Uh, there's been prophets throughout every era of the Bible. Uh, Maria mentioned like Samuel's a prophet earlier. Uh, but the, pro- the classical period of prophecy happens during the divided kingdoms and in, into Israel's return of exile. So it covers about four or 500 years. So um, let's see. So the prophecy period is probably around here, kingdoms captured, to returning from exile. Okay? So I have an, um, another... Quick question for you. The major prophets, uh, are, there's five major prophets and 12 minor prophets, okay? So my question is this, um, another test question. What's the difference between the major and the minor prophets? Uh, is it A, the major prophet books are longer? Or is it B, the major prophets preach to larger audiences than the minor prophets? Or is it C, the major prophets preach predominantly to the Israelites? Or is it D, the major prophets preach predominantly to the foreign nations? What do you guys think? The answer is actually A. The reason why they're called major prophets is just simply their books are longer. It's really what is, how they just divide it. So someone said, oh, these five books, they're the longest. We'll call them major. And then the other 12, we'll call them minor. 
Um, but the major prophets, because they're longer, are broader in contact and generally have a more global message. Okay. Um, but, they're, but just because they're longer doesn't mean they're not any more important. So whether you're a major or minor prophet, they all are important in predicting the future Messiah and in warning people of their message. And sometimes some of the prophets were called, most of them time they were called to preach to the Israelites, but sometimes they were called to preach to foreign nations. Um, like Jonah, he was called to preach to Syria, even though he didn't want to, for example. All right, so that's a summary of the Old Testament which the law lays the foundation for Christ, history books lay the preparation for Christ, poetry laid aspiration, and the prophecy books, they lay the expectation for Christ to come. Now we get to the New Testament, and we see how the New Testament manifests Christ, which is a lot more obvious. Obviously, the Gospels, that's pretty obvious how they lay out the manifest, manifestation of Christ, because they are biographical sketches of Jesus. And there's four of them, because it gives us, five and four books gives us a more unique perspective of his life and more thorough treatment. Um, Matthew appeals more to a Jewish audience, um, uh, because he has a lot of writing in his books that would be understood from the Jewish audience. Mark is more action-packed and shows Jesus' ministry and life as a suffering sermon. A lot of people say, if you're, gonna, if you're not you know, new to the Bible, and you want to read one of the Gospels, maybe you choose Mark, because it's easiest to read and understand. Uh, Luke uh, gives accurate details of Jesus' life and reveals his humanity and perfection as a human, and John is more theological and has emphasis on deity of Christ. But all of these uh, Gospel books contribute to the life of Christ in some way, giving us a thorough view of his life, uh, death, and resurrection for us. Acts is, in case you didn't know this, is written by Luke. Acts is like the sequel to Luke's gospel. And as I know you guys are going through Acts right now in your sermon series. Um, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. It describes the spread of the gospel after the resurrection of Christ and the growth of the early church. So Acts kind of acts as a connection between the gospels to the epistles, the life of Jesus to the life of the church. And it focuses on two of the apostles, uh, Peter and Paul. Now we get to the epistles. The epistles are basically, epistles basically just a formal way to say, uh, a, a, a fancy way to say a formal letter. And epistles are basically letters to various churches or individuals providing instruction and doctrine and encouragement and discipline to these new believers. Um, so while the Gospels and the Acts give us the foundation for the New Testament, the epistles give us that interpretation and application of the New Testament. So that's, what the, so that's why the epistles are the most practical for us to understand how to live as a Christian in the 21st century and how to do ter- church in the 21st century. Um, one um, little test question here. How are the epistles ordered? Or is it A, is it that the Paul's epistles come first and order from the longest to the shortest, followed by the epistles of other writers? Or is it B, they are ordered based on when they were written? Or is it C, they are ordered based on the region of churches to which they were written? Or is it D, is based on the order of the churches and people that Paul visited on his missionary journeys, followed by the other apostles' missionary journeys? What do you guys think? The actual answer is actually A. <laughs> they're basically, Paul's epistles come first, and they're ordered from the longest to the shortest, followed by the other writers. So let me show you the epistle section. The, the way it's ordered in the Bible is Romans through Philemon. These are all Paul's. And this is not meant to be just trivia. This helps you kind of understand uh, well, when you're looking up and who's writing and so on. Paul's comes first, and Romans is the longest book, followed by 1 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is short, but they, 
tagging on to 1 Corinthians, it just makes sense to put it next to it. And then Galatians through First, um, Second Thessalonians, which are the shortest. So these are the letters to the churches. And then when Paul writes, he also writes to some individuals, First Timothy, I mean, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's how the order, they're ordered from as long as the shortest letters. So it's, that's the way it's done. And then the rest of the letters are put in from basically longest to shortest also from the other writers. Now, Hebrews is very controversial because 50% of the people think that Paul wrote Hebrews. And if it really was found out, then I guess you would stick Hebrews up here. I'm not sure which is longer, Romans or Hebrews, but it'd be up here. But since it's controversial and half the other people don't think Paul wrote it, they stuck Hebrews between Paul's letters and the rest of the letters. And then James was probably the first book in the Bible that was written. Um, and then you have Peter, John, Jude. So the way I remember it is, if Paul's writing and it's named after a person, it's writing to the person. If the other apostles are writing, it's named after them, not to a person. So James, Peter, John, and Jude wrote, it's named after them. When Paul writes, he doesn't have a letter named after him. There's no letter called Paul. You know, um, He signs a Paul, but Apostle Paul, but then it's written to the people. Now we just get to the last section of the genre of the Bible. It's called Revelation. This final book of the Bible, sometimes called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And John penned this book while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And Revelation shows that culmination of the end-time prophecies. It gives us that hope-filled message of salvation in Jesus Christ and promise of blessing to his followers. The take-home point of Revelation is that all things will be subsequently brought into consummation in Jesus Christ as he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it puts that exclamation point on that theme of the Bible that all things are made by Jesus, it's going to be redeemed by Jesus, and, accomplished, and redemption is accomplished through him, and that all things will be consummated in him. The paradise lost in Genesis subsequently becomes paradise found or paradise regained in Revelation. The gate of the tree of life that was closed in Genesis is reopened forevermore in Revelation. That is that running thread of the Bible that we read. So with that, I hope that giving this overview will help you understand the Bible more. Um, Just realize that there's a Christocentric theme to every section and genre of the Bible. If you just read the New Testament alone, it's like walking into a movie at a halfway point. You find out what happens at the end, but you miss the background story, the character development, the plot line, and how they got there. The Old Testament lays that groundwork, that background uh, information for us to see why the New Testament is the way it is, why Jesus had to come and the way he came and how he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies and symbols and laws and narratives that are subsequently revealed and consummated in the New Testament and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So when you read a Bible, remember to link it to the overarching theme of the Bible. Consider the section or genre you're reading and how that fits like puzzle pieces to the big picture of Jesus Christ. And both Testaments still reveal that same holy, merciful, and righteous God who condemns sin, but promises to save sinners through this atoning sacrifice accomplished by Jesus Christ. Um, I have one more slide, and I know I'm running out of time, um, but I will also, maybe if anybody has a burning question, I can take it, that I can answer in 30 seconds or less. No? No burning Or you can ask me afterwards? No? No question? That would be good. That would show off your knowledge. And no, okay. Um, have one one more minute. Do we do one more slide, Peter? You can tell me no. All right, all right. So I just want to answer this one question because people ask this all the time. 
They always ask, why does God seem so cruel and vindictive in the Old Testament as opposed to New Testament? You know, except this, well, I thought God doesn't change. He's so cruel and vindictive in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, this is where the overview, understanding the overview of the Bible comes in play. Just think about the Old Testament. Old Testament covers 4,000 years, from 4,000 to a little bit before 5,000 B.C. All this stuff is happening, okay? The New Testament, how much the time period does it cover? It just covers 70 years, day zero or year one, year zero, to Jesus' death and then the life of the church afterwards. It covers 70 years. And if you round it up to 100, that means the Old Testament covers 40 times more time period than the New Testament. And remember, the New Testament's genres are different. They're letters, they're gospels, they're acts of the apostles, okay? They're not going to, they have a different bent and a different uh, 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 imperative to the books. So the genres are different. That's why God may seem so cruel uh, in the Old Testament. Think about the life of the United States. How old is America? 250 years old? Do you know how many wars the United States has been in in just 250 years? I counted. It's something like over 80 wars. Some of them are really small, but we got World War I, World War II, Revolution War, Civil War. We got, you know, war, wars in the Middle East. There's tons of wars. There's all sorts of bloodshed and stuff in just this two, small period of 250 years. Well, think about 4,000 years. It's not, the, the Old Testament is not going to record what King David had for breakfast one day. You know, it's going to go over major stuff, right? Major wars, bloodshed. Um, how uh, God is going to have to punish nations and, and so on. So the genres are different. So God is not any more cruel in the Old Testament than in the New Testament, or he's also become nice God in the New Testament. It's because the genre is different. It covers a lot wider time period. Um, but by the way, revolution, revelation, sorry, there's a lot of bloodshed there that we ne- haven't seen be- witnessed before. So it's the same God. It's the same holy God, just God, and also loving God throughout all the centuries and throughout the Bible. But I just want to answer that question to just show you how having an overview of the Bible helps you answer questions like this for yourself and for others. All right. Thank you. I won't answer that one. But uh, all right. Thank you very much for your attention today.